The scripture this morning will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. In the Pew Bible, is uh, page number 1076. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As an obedient child, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, Be, ho be holy, for I am holy. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We also want to invite you and remind all of us to be inviting individuals to our Friends Day, that is the last Sunday of this month on the 27th. There are postcard size invitations out in the foyer. If you want to grab those to hand to someone or to mail to them, uh, be sure and take advantage of those. And also uh, at our Mount Juliet Facebook page, there uh, is an advertisement there that you could use on social media uh, to get the word out that way. And we appreciate John Michael making that available. And so be sure and mark your calendar and make your plans. And remember, on Friends Day, our morning services and Bible class are the exact same schedule. And then in the afternoon at four o'clock, we have a worship at the Charlie Daniels Park. And then after that, we eat a real uh, simple meal together, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And we hang out after that and a lot will we'll leave. You leave whenever you want. Some will leave pretty quickly after the meal and, and then several will stay all the way till dark. And so uh, it's just a great, great time together. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful time to invite guests. Uh, down at the park, guests love being there. And uh, it's just a good afternoon together. And so be thinking and praying about who you can invite and be thinking about who that would be a spiritual benefit to them. And uh, it'd be a great way for us to, to get to know them, great way to plant seeds, and hopefully uh, some really good spiritual and eternal good can come out of that. Also, that very same weekend, Recovery Through Christ is going to have a ministry leader and facilitator training. It will begin on Saturday and go to 8 to 5, and then after the morning services on Sunday uh, to the evening worship. And so uh, if you are interested in that, be sure and make a note of that, and you can talk with Jamie Harper about more on that. But also uh, a big reason why I'm sharing that with you uh, today is you may have an acquaintance or a family member at another congregation that maybe has talked with you in the past saying, I wish we could learn more about that. I wish we could uh, have recovery through Christ in our congregation. This is a wonderful opportunity for others of other congregations to come in and uh, they can learn a lot more about recovery through Christ firsthand. As a matter of fact, there'll be individuals from five states uh, here already that have uh, registered. And, and, and so if uh, others are definitely welcome. We'll cover topics like holding and in intervention, suicide preparedness, ministering to the hurting in your congregation, effective leadership, being in the trenches with Christ, and etc. Uh, we appreciate the great work that 
uh, is done in recovery through Christ here, but also many congregations around uh, right now. And we expect a lot more in the future. And so be thankful for that. Be prayerful of that in any way that you can support that and be involved or be uh, aided by it. Be sure and, and let us know. We'd love to point you in the right direction there. It's amazing the opportunities that God gives us. It really is. Uh, we're thankful for Alex Delzota that is on a mission trip right now to Argentina. His uh, wife Patricia and their family worship with us. And uh, Alex, on his own, uh, has a, an internet radio program where he gets online and he teaches the gospel. And there's been a lot of interest in Argentina in particular cities. And so he has taken a few week mission trip to go into those cities and continue teaching those that have interest. And so the, this is a picture where he's on a radio station there live. The next picture is a few other radio stations that he's been on. And uh, some of these radio stations are four and five hours apart as he goes to different pockets of uh, where he's finding individuals that have had interest in learning the gospel. Uh, this next slide is a picture of him just in homes where he has met individuals and sat down with them and studied the gospel with them. And uh, as, as we corresponded even this week through email, he said, as a matter of fact, when you guys are having morning worship, he said, within just a few minutes of that following morning worship, I'll be on the radio for two hours live preaching. And he said, remember me in prayer. And so why don't we do that together? What a wonderful opportunity he is taking advantage of. And let's pray God's blessings on that. Our most gracious God, we humbly bow before you, thankful that you adopt us into your kingdom and then that you allow us to share in your kingdom work. God, we are mindful of Alex. We're thankful for his love for you. He and Patricia and their family are such a blessing to us. We thank you for that family. But we pray specifically now for, for Alex as he's on the mission field. We pray for success as he is striving to reach out with those that, that some form of foundation has already been made and, and he's trying to water those seeds or perhaps with others he's trying to plant seeds brand new. God, you know hearts and you know the opportunities and we pray that, that you put those together for him that, that as a servant of yours, he can do great good in your kingdom. We pray even in a few minutes as he preaches your word uh, on the radio, we pray that, that good results from the, the preaching of your word can take place. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for the role that you give us in your family. And our prayer is that we'll be faithful children and that we'll live with uh, eternity in view God, we truly look forward uh, to not only standing before you, but, but just being before you for an eternity. This morning, God, as we're about to enter into a study of your holy word, we pray that uh, a study of this, our minds will be open and our heart will be pure and that we truly will have a hunger, uh, a righteous and a genuine hunger to know you and your holiness even better. And it's through your son's name we pray and amen. As we think about entering into a new theme this morning of still God's great expectations, what would God expect of us? One of the things that God would expect of us is he would expect for us to be holy. We just had capably read for us 1 Peter, the first chapter, the verses that speak not only of us, the command for us to be holy, but even tells us to be holy as I am holy. So it reveals something there for us, and that is that for us to truly understand how we should be holy, we must first give study to what is 
the holiness of God. I'd suggest to you until we learn about the holiness of God, we won't really see ourselves for who we are and what we can become in our holiness. And so I'd like for you to think about this, not just as a study this morning, but I'd like for you to think about it today and even next week. We're going to launch out of 1 Peter, the first chapter, and spend some time in Isaiah 6 today. But it's still under this, this study of we need to be holy. But today, instead of jumping right in and seeing what are the teachings about our holiness, let's spend this morning and tonight on Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and strive to learn more about God's holiness. And then when we come back next week, Hopefully there will have been a grounding, if you will, in the teachings of God's holiness that will help us in our own search for holiness. If you were going to draw attention to something, how would you do it? I think about the inflatable tube men that you see around at businesses today, and I think about that's a genuine way where all you're doing is saying, I'd like to draw people's attention over here. What can I put out to make people look this way? And when you see those little guys waving and dancing around, it's hard not to look. Or the old one that's been out for years. What about the, the large helium balloons that float above businesses where you, you drive down the road and in a distance you see this balloon and, and that's what the business wants you to do. They want you to study that balloon tied all the way back to their business. Or one that I've noticed more in recent years. What about the spinning sign man? You, you have to love what those guys can do. I think about the guy that stands up at Hermitage, up at the McDonald's on the corner there of Hermitage. Now, there's a few different guys, and not to knock any of them, but a couple of them aren't that good. But there's one guy, he is amazing. I, I have been tempted to just pull off the road and watch him for like a few minutes. I've, I've literally sat at the red light once it's turned green, not knowing it's turned green, still just watching him. He's got amazing moves in, in what he does. I don't have a clue what he's advertising, but he got my attention. Now, another one that, that is interesting to me is how a chicken restaurant will use dairy cows to advertise. That's crazy. That makes no sense, but it gets your attention. I mean, you can say, oh, it does make sense. They try to say, no, if it was going to make sense, it would be beef cattle holding the sign. It wouldn't be a milk cow holding the sign. I'm telling you from the farm, that one makes no sense. The first time I ever saw it, I'm like, who designed that? But you know what? It doesn't matter to America who designed it. It got your attention that a milk cow is advertising for a chicken company. Now that's amazing, but it got your attention. Now, what if it's only in writing? How do you draw attention to something when it's only in writing? For example, there are several things in Scripture that God wants to draw attention to. And if God wanted to, He can do anything that He sets out to do. He could have made highlighting in Scripture. He could have made bold. He could have made larger font. He could have had words to be underlined. You think of all the ways, if God would have wanted to, he could have had it that when you unroll the original scroll, that, that just like your Hallmark card, something just pops up like a helium balloon that says, hey, it's tied to this word, don't miss it. You know that he didn't do all those things. So how did he do it? When God wants to emphasize something in Scripture... How did he do it? Repetition. 
Look in Galatians, the first chapter. In Galatians, the first chapter, we read verse eight and nine and notice how the very same thing is repeated two verses in a row and even tells that he's doing that. This is Paul writing to the people of Galatia. He is so surprised that they're already willing to move away from the gospel that has been given to them. And so he says in Galatians 1 and 8, and even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now notice the start of this next verse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. If you were just giving a casual read, I'm not suggesting you ought to read the Bible that way, but I'm just saying if you gave a casual read to the Bible, you would get down to verse nine and you start saying to yourself, wait a minute, I, I just read that verse. And then you'd slow down and go back and read, read verse nine and you'd be like, oh, not only did I just read that verse, he even begins verse nine by saying, I wanna say the same thing again to you. What was he doing? He was saying, I don't want you to miss. I'm about to write to you this epistle of Galatia and it really, the whole problem in this epistle is you're leaving the gospel. Don't leave the gospel. You'll be condemned if you leave the gospel. And so he says it twice for emphasis sake. Sometimes the emphasis is not in saying an entire statement twice. Sometimes it's in saying the same word twice. Jesus would do this from time to time. In John, the first chapter and verse 50, this is in the middle toward the end of Nathaniel being called to be a disciple of Jesus. And he was really amazed at some of the things that Jesus knew about him that he didn't think a man should be able to know about him. And, and Jesus is somewhat saying, hey, if you think that's amazing, I'm gonna show you even greater things than that. And then look at verse 51 of John 1 and 51. And he said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, that particular quote there in that, on that slide is out of the King James. And the reason I chose the King James for that is because the King James still sticks with the original out of the Greek where the same word is used twice. Some of your other translations may say things like, uh, assuredly, I say. And, and in one sense, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It just misses what the original language was, where the original language was, I want to say a word that draws attention to what I'm about to say to you is true. That's what verily, verily, it could also be translated truly, truly. In other words, he could say, now I'm about to say something that is true. Not only that, I want to say the word truly twice. Truly, truly. Now that I have your attention, really notice what I'm about to say to you, Nathaniel. That's kind of what it is. But you know what would be really great? What'd be really great here if the translators just left the Greek word more like the Greek word. The Greek word coming out of the Hebrew here is amen, amen. You recognize it as amen. That's literally the Greek word here. In other words, today sometime, when we as teachers or preachers state a truth that, that we think is emphatic, it, it needs to be emphasized, at the end, the teacher or preacher might say, amen. Now, if you think, I bet that never happened in the Bible. Oh, it did happen in the Bible, except when Jesus would do it as the master teacher, he would state it at the beginning of his sentence. And he wouldn't ask the audience to say it. He knew what he was saying was true. And, and so he, he would begin the statement by saying, 
amen, amen, and make the statement. Amen being, this is true, I affirm this, and stating it twice in a row was to say, I'm emphasizing to you, this is true, this is true, listen to me. Now, there is an attribute of God that in Scripture is exalted above, it seems like, all other attributes. And the reason we know it is that it's the only time that an attribute about God in Scripture is said not just once or twice, but it is said three times for repetition's sake to emphasize it. Look in Revelation. In Revelation, the fourth chapter, and in verse eight, we have a scene of worship. It's heavenly worship. And we see what the creatures are doing as they're worshiping God. And it says in verse eight, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That would be true if that's what it said, but that's not what it said, was it? Well, why didn't he pull what was very common among the Jews? Why didn't he say, holy, holy Lord God Almighty? And you know what a Jew would have said if they would have heard that? Or even in our culture today, it's still true. But it definitely was true in the Jewish culture. They would have said, oh, he's emphasizing that. Do you see that? It was the same word twice. He's bringing emphasis to it. God, God is, is, is really holy. And in this heavenly scene where God is being worshiped, the emphasis is on his holiness. But you think how it causes the reader who is carefully studying to stop and say, wait a minute. It's a really, really rare thing in Scripture for something to be repeated three times. But yet in this scene of worship in heaven, the host that are worshiping God, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. Never in Scripture do we see love Love, love is God Almighty, although we know God is love. In Scripture, we don't see mercy, mercy, merciful is God Almighty, although God is merciful. We never see just, just, just. We never see omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. We never see those things. There's something about the attribute of God's holiness that not only when we are shown scenes of worship in the heavenly realm that the holiness stands out, but there's something about the holiness that it's almost as if it can't be overemphasized. That causes me to pause as I think about us studying holiness this month. And it causes me to ask myself, what am I missing about holiness? Because if somebody said to me, hey, I tell you what, at two o'clock today, and not just somebody, if God, if God said at two o'clock today, I want to let you go into the holy room, the holy throne room of God. I'm going to, I'm going to let you have 30 minutes there in the holy room. You're, you're going to be able to see the, the Lord on the throne high and lifted up. You're going to be able to see. And listen, you can say, wow, what a vision. Brethren, listen, he's on a throne high and lifted up right now. It wouldn't be show me a vision. It would be show me reality. What is happening right now? 
The Lord's on a throne high and lifted up right now. I assure you that there's a heavenly host worshiping him right now. And what if at, what if at two o'clock today said, hey, be looking forward to it. You're going to be able to go in and just you, nobody else, you're going to be able to see the holiness of God in this. But what would you expect? You know, until I do studies like this, I'm afraid my mind wouldn't come back around and say, I can't wait to see the holiness of God. I think my mind might be a lot more simple and just say, wow, I'm going to be able to see God? That's neat. And I think God will look down and say, but you're missing it. Anytime we see those visions of worship of God in heaven, the emphasis is see the holiness of God. And it's not just once. It's holy, holy, holy. And then we come over to passages like we're studying this month, the first Peter, the first chapter where he says, I want you to be holy. It's a commandment. But he says, because I'm holy, it's a revelation. How can I obey the commandment if I don't even know what the revelation is? How can I, in my mind's eye, see God but never think about holiness, but yet when the scripture shows me God, it can't say it enough. And so it leaves me hungry. It leaves me wanting. It leaves me saying, what is it about the holiness of God that hasn't sunk in deep enough? What is it that I ought to put my spiritual roots into that, that I can grasp truly who God is, the attribute of God that no other attribute is said of him three times so that when I set out to live this holiness, I have some kind of understanding of the holiness of God. Because by the way, you and I can never live holy without God. And so it's not like I need a checklist. Let me be holy on my own. The only way we're going to be holy is that holiness that we will receive is rooted and sourced in God. And so with that in mind, will you turn with me to Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and let's spend some time here this morning, uh, a little bit, and then we'll come back even this evening. And I know, I know it's a, it's a holiday and I know you're saying, isn't that wonderful? Because now we have even more time to come back tonight because we got extra time tomorrow. And so don't miss tonight because we're going to go into the depth of Isaiah 6. Whereas this morning, we'll spend some time just kind of skimming and appreciating some things that it relates to us approaching God's holiness. But tonight, we're going to dig in a little deeper. So please, please be back tonight as, as we study that. We're in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and, and uh, we'll spend more time in verse one uh, this, this evening. But it was a year of the king Uzzah that he died, and, and we don't know if this happened while he was alive and about to die that year, right after he died. But what he saw was the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he was shown this vision because that's how it exists. And then in, in verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Now notice each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So again, Isaiah is invited to come into 
the realm of, of the existence of the Lord face to face, if you will. He's looking at him on his throne, high and lifted up. He's seeing this train fill the temple of, of his robe. And, but not only what he sees is magnificent, but then he hears something. Okay, wait a minute. These angelic creatures, God's creation, these angelic creatures, they, they have six wings. But notice they're saying something. What are they saying? They are praising God's holiness. But again, it's repetitious. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. What is it about seeing the holiness of God and how does it leave you? There is a pattern of good-hearted people when they see the holiness of God to how they respond. And that's what I'd like for us to spend the rest of our time on this morning. What is the response of good-hearted people to seeing the holiness of God? On this next slide, we have the very same verses, but we have different highlights. You see there in verse three, the, the, the crying out of, of this seraphim was holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. Why was the doorpost shaken? I don't think it was because a seraphim said something, although it was the result of what the seraphim said. So here we see a cry of praise about and identifying the holiness of God three times and the doorpost shakes. An innate object responds to the praise of the holiness of God. Now, what does it say about you and I? If we can study and strive in our understanding to see the holiness of God and we don't respond. An object, the idea of an innate object is that that is lifeless, without conscience, without emotion. Where I live, things can be set in a house and no doorpost shakes. And somebody says, well, well maybe, maybe it's an earthquake. Well, this wasn't an earth, this was in heaven. And maybe it was a heaven quake, but it was because of the praise of the holiness of God. And this ought not to be new to us. You remember, turn back, if you will, to Luke, the 19th chapter. You remember in Luke, the 19th chapter, when Jesus makes this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, that week, he is, at the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. But at the beginning of the week, there's a multitude of Jews that, that loves him and is following him, and they are ready to proclaim him as king of the Jews. And so they're, they're giving him a royal entrance into Jerusalem. And part of this entrance is recorded of what they said in verse 38. Look at Luke 19 and 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, tonight, we're going to look at, at some of this terminology of Lord because that's in Isaiah the sixth chapter several times too. And so think about it. These individuals were very quick to crown him king 
And they were very quick to say that they had and was doing this because of in his name is the authority of the Lord. And they also were quick here to give him the highest praise. Well, if you believe that he is the Messiah and that he's God in flesh, you'd go right along with that. But the Pharisees didn't believe that. And so they immediately spoke up in 39 and some of the Pharisees called from the crowd and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they shouldn't be saying things that only should be attributed to deity and you're letting them say that? And notice Jesus' answer. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. God says, let me tell you something. My holiness is great enough that it demands a response. And if people won't respond, my very creation that does not have life nor emotion will emotionally respond with shouts of truth. But what we see is people with good hearts do respond. Let's look at three examples. If you would turn to the book Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk, we have the prophet that in Habakkuk, the first chapter by verse three begins to ask God the question, why? And what he's asking why about is that Judah is being destroyed. Babylon's gonna completely take them over and a remnant's going to go back into Babylonian captivity. And so Habakkuk is seeing all of this, but he's not understanding all of this. And you know what he sees? He sees righteous people being oppressed by wicked people prospering. And so he asked God, why? And then by the time we get to verse 12 and 13, he even is bringing out the fact that he still believes God is holy, but that may be part of the problem. Because in 13, what he says, maybe the holiness of God with pure eyes cannot look upon the wickedness of God, um, the wickedness of the world. And if, they can't look, if he can't look upon the wickedness of the world, maybe he's not seeing how the wicked people are oppressing. But apparently he's not sure about all this. Because then at the second chapter in verse one, he says to God, as he's asking all these questions, I'm gonna go up to the rampart. In other words, the high place. And I'm going to wait on an answer from you. Listen, God can handle any doubt and any question you have. But just make sure that you go to him for the answer. In other words, it's not fair to have questions about God and go to someone else for the answer because no one knows God the way God knows himself. And so in his wisdom, he goes and he waits for an answer. And so really what chapter two is about and even referred some in chapter three was chapter two is a lot of God's answer and chapter three is a lot of his praise and prayer after he receives God's answer. But what it boils down to is God is saying to him, listen, I'm, I am raising up Babylon to be a chastening rod. Judah needs to be punished. They've totally rebelled against me. I'm going to allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. I'm going to allow Judah to be destroyed and a remnant's going to be taken back. I'm allowing all of those things to happen. And so when you see the wicked oppressing the righteous, it's a part of the punishment. It's not because now all of a sudden God can't protect you anymore. 
And so what he does is he comes out in the third chapter and he says a prayer. And, and a lot of it, if you will, is in code. In other words, it's not real clear exactly what he means by each phrase, but it, it, is, it looks as if what he does in his prayer is he praises God about anywhere from eight to 12 times for different times that God has protected his people. You see what he's saying? Now he's praying and saying, okay, I realize it. God, you do have the power. You have the power to protect, but also if you want to allow a, a wicked nation to rise up and punish, you have the power to do that. And so now he's praising God because he has a better understanding of what God does. But now I want you to pause with me for just a moment here and ask this question. What would it have been like to go and wait on that rampart and wait for a discussion with God? Imagine coming back home that afternoon. Ooh, doo -doo -doo. What are you doing? Oh, I've just been up talking to God up on the high place. Would it be that casual? Do you see what I'm asking you? How does it affect someone when they truly see, see the holiness of God? When they have a good heart, there's always a tremendous effect. Look here in the third chapter in verse two. Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And wrath, remember mercy. And he goes on and he talks about many things that God has done and he's praising them for those things. And then drop down to verse 16. And in verse 16, he says, when I heard, in other words, this is when he's saying, I'm talked out, I sat down and I talked to God. He says, when I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Habakkuk, what was it like to sit down and talk with God? Oh, I tell you what, I had a lot of questions for God. I was gonna bring it to God's attention. Do you realize that you're going to sleep on the job? Righteous people are being oppressed. Hello, where are you, God? And God started talking to him. He said, I started feeling smaller and smaller. I started feeling afraid. My lips started quivering. Even my insides, my soul within me started quivering. And you know what happened? He changed. At the end of this chapter, he's praising God for being his savior. Even though the wicked are oppressing him. At the end of this chapter, He's saying that it's in God that he'll find his strength. When at the beginning of this book, he was ready to give up on God because he didn't think God was fair. Isn't it interesting how when we really start to see God for who he really is, there's this awesome awe and respect because the more we see God's holiness, the more we recognize who we are and the more we realize what we could become. Let's look at one more example before we close with Isaiah. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? There was a lot going on behind the scenes that Job wasn't privy to, but it didn't change the fact that it heavily affected his life. And so he lost all of his children. He lost a supportive wife. He lost all of his possessions and he lost his health. And then friends come over and they don't make it very uh, easy to, to bear and deal with this either because they begin to, saying that's all his fault. He must have done something evil. And, and so he, in a sense, he's trying to cope with this. Where's God in all this? Why is God allowing this to happen? And he's also trying to cope with his friends that are miserable friends. And finally, God speaks up in the 38th 
verse, uh, 38th chapter. And we don't have a slide for this, but I want you to notice verse three in the 38th chapter. He says, now prepare, this, God comes down finally. Finally, God breaks silence and says, okay, I want to talk to you. And he says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. So for all these chapters, he's been wondering, God, where are you in this? Why is this happening? What's wrong with this? You know what God does? There's one side of us, one side of me, that expect God to come down with his arms open. Say, Joe, look at you with balls. Look at all your grief. Look at all your loss. Put your head on my shoulder. I'm so sorry. But God in his wisdom, he knew what Job needed right then. Please get this. In his wisdom, he comes down and he, he speaks to his humanity and masculinity. Some translations even say, stand up like a man. He comes down and, and he's bold. He says, you got a lot of questions for me, buddy? Stand up and let's go toe to toe. You've been drilling me for a lot of chapters. I'm about to drill you and let's see how this goes. And if you think he's being arrogant, God isn't being arrogant here. What he's trying to do is he's trying to help Job see who he really is as God so Job can see who he really is as a human. And when we truly see that, we'll trust God. Did you get that? And so he just goes through a list of oodles of questions. Where were you when I formed the earth? By the way, what holds the foundation of the earth? Who's holding the plumb line? Who put the color in the peacocks? Who causes snow? Who makes ice? Who put the thunder in the horse's hoof? Who put the strength in the horse's neck? Question after question after question. And finally, all Job could say is, either I don't know the answer to the question, I can't do it, but I know this. You know the answer and you can do it. Or you did it. Now look at verse chapter 42. In chapter 42, notice what his answer is now that they had a couple of discussions back and forth. Now that they had a few discussions back and forth, he says to him, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. So that's a big change right there. I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Do you see what he's saying in that phrase right there? We've read a lot of good phrases, but you see that one right there? He's saying almost as if, hey, for years, I've heard about you. Job was a righteous and upright man. He was a good man. But Job says there's something different now. All the time in the past, there's things I've heard about you. But now through this experience, now I see you. Well, Job, what happens when you really see God for who he is? Notice this next line. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, now I see really who you are. And I am so ashamed that I would question you. And I'm so ashamed that I would be against you and that I would be mad at you. Now I'm starting to recognize I can trust you and you're always moving in my best interest. 
And even though there's things that's too wonderful for me to understand, I trust you. So the part of me that was against you, I abhor that in me. I sat down in ashes and I, but notice this is all about repentance. I turned toward you. In other words, now I'm not this one that doesn't trust you. Now I'm one who trusts you completely. Why, Job? Why? Because I'm starting to see God like I've never seen him before. And so we close with Isaiah and we'll develop this tonight, but I just want you to see this. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, we've already read verse one and two and three where the holiness of God, and verse four, where the doorposts shake. And then the question is, if the doorpost responds, how is Isaiah going to respond? Notice what he says in the fifth verse of the sixth chapter. So I said, woe is me. The word woe carries with it lamenting, oh me, I am so sad over this. And it carries with it judgment. Oh me, I'm so sad that I was so wrong. How are you wrong? He says, for I am undone. Undone means falling apart versus altogether. Uh, a lack of integrity versus someone who is spiritual integrity. Job says, you know what? I'm sorry, Isaiah says, you know what? Now that I see the holiness of God, I see myself. I'm not so put together as I used to think. Are you listening, Christian? Now that I see the holiness of God, I'm not so put together as I used to think. I looked around other people and I thought, I've kind of got this thing together. But I see the holiness of God. It's like, woe is me. It's kind of like that tiptoe out of the back of the room. <laughs> I don't belong here. You're so holy and I'm so not holy. And so he immediately calls out his lips. We'll talk more about that tonight. But then notice what God does out of his holiness. He doesn't yell, get out the back door. You don't belong here. God's holiness is all about helping us to be holy. And so we read verse five. I'm sorry, we read verse six where he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. So he went from this, I'm undone to the Lord saying, wait, 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 I want to help you. And so now we're kind of like Habakkuk that says, wow, now I see God really is on my side. It's like Job that says, where's God in all this? And then finally he's like, I'm starting to see God is on my side. Isaiah, like, I don't belong here. Wait, wait, you do. Let me, let me forgive your sins. Let me purge those sins. And the holiness of God is where our holiness is found. And the purging and the forgiveness of sins. And he was so grateful for that. That when, when God says, I need a prophet. Remember, Isaiah was one of the great prophets. And, I was, and God says, I need a prophet to go out. Who, who could I send? 
And Isaiah is saying, here am I. It's not here I am. It's not, hey, I'm standing over here. It's here am I. I've been purged. I know you. I've got a message to tell. Let me go. Let me be sent. What a story that is found first in the holiness of God, resulting in Isaiah's holiness that sends him out to tell others about it. This morning, I hope that you invest your heart, your mind, your time into the study this month of holiness. And I hope that all of us can reach a point that if someone says, what are you looking forward to about heaven? I hope that in an instant, our honest answer would be, what I dwell upon, what I look forward to seeing is the holiness of God. I want to see the holiness of God. This morning, is there anything we can do to help you take steps toward the holy God? If you are ready to be immersed into Christ or you're ready to be restored, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.